It's where we pick up in our walk through the Gospel of Mark. Beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is life. It gives us life because it has your character and nature flowing through it to us. And so, Father, I ask that you would bring life this morning to this gathered people where we need salvation. Father, I ask that you would bring it where we need conviction, repentance, encouragement. Father, I ask that you would bring it. Do this work in us that only you can do so that only you get the glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to chapter 11 in the Gospel of Mark, and we enter this time of Jesus' ministry that has been traditionally known as the Passion Week. Whether all of these events occurred during this one-week period or not, we'll deal with that in a little bit, but going back as far as the 4th century, the church has typically taught these events as part of the final week of Jesus' life and ministry, culminating in His resurrection. These events are the culmination and purpose of His coming, called the Passion from the Latin word passio, which means suffering or enduring, they aptly describe what Jesus walks through during this part of his ministry, his willingness, his necessary walk to the cross to give his life as a ransom for many. It's so important in the life and ministry of Jesus that uh, about 20% of the Gospel of Luke covers this time period, from the triumphal entry to the resurrection. About 25% of the Gospel of Matthew covers this time period. 50% of the Gospel of John covers this time of his ministry. In Mark's Gospel, it comprises about a third of his Gospel, chapters 11 through 16. In fact, it's so crucial to Mark's Gospel, this passion narrative, that one writer said that, that Mark's Gospel is a passion story with a long introduction. So we, we covered that long introduction last year, chapters 1 through 10. And we looked at all the events that lead to this time of his ministry where he would give his life. And we're going to spend these last five chapters essentially over the next five months walking through this passion narrative of Christ. I'm not going to do a a long review of chapters 1 through 10. Those are all available on our website through our podcast. You can listen to those teachings. But we've come into this, this section of Scripture that's very familiar, especially to those of us who've been in church a long time or to those of us who know the Scriptures or read the Scriptures a lot, to those of us who've watched a lot of Jesus movies, 
Like we, we, have, we think we know these events. We think we know what happens during this time when Jesus goes into the city and he gives his life and then he rises from the dead. And, and we probably have most of the details correct. But the tendency is to always assume, I know this, I got this, right? I know these stories, I know the meaning, the significance, and we enter this state sometimes of being unteachable because we feel like we know it so well. In our lack of humility, we miss an opportunity to grow, be challenged, convicted, or transformed. So my prayer for us this morning, my prayer for us as we walk through the rest of the Gospel of Mark over the next five months, is in humility remain teachable. And ask the Spirit of God to give us fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear and a heart to receive whatever He has for us as we watch our King come and give His life. On our behalf. And that's crucial in a text like this because uh, there are several details of the story that have been generally assumed by the church or portrayed by the church in dramas and movies and song that have either maybe been wrong or are definitely overemphasized. And so we hear a familiar story, we assume we know what happened, and we dig deeper and we're like, hey, we might be off on a few things. Not significant or essential stuff, but just just off a little bit. So Let me list some things that are related to this story and and see if this is what you've always assumed is going on during this event in the life of Jesus. Um, Number one, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem occurred on the Sunday of the week of his crucifixion and resurrection, or what has been traditionally called Palm Sunday. Number two, Jesus was received by the crowds as their Messiah, only to be rejected by the same crowds at the end of the week as they called for Barabbas to be released. Number three, Jesus' triumphal entry captivated the entire city of Jerusalem. Those are, those are things that I would say, yeah, those are, that's probably what happened. But as you dig into the text, you're like, that might not be what happened. Definitely not what happened in some instances. Now again, they don't change the meaning of the story, the significance, but it's usually how it's portrayed, and it feeds that tendency to assume we know what's going on when we may actually be off. So let's, let's dig into the story and see what actually happened. Just beginning with those first two words, now, when. When is when, right? The Gospel of John indicates that this entry into the city happened during the week of the Passover feast. But none of the other Gospel writers give us the same designation. In fact, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention the week of Passover until after the triumphal entry. There are basically two reasons why scholars are reluctant to say 100% sure that the triumphal entry happened on Palm Sunday. First, the number of events that are recorded between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion seem to indicate a longer period of time than, than what could have possibly happened during one week. In other words, Jesus was in and around Jerusalem doing a lot more stuff than, that, than just what could have happened in, in that one week period. For instance, in Mark 14, 49... Jesus says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, they're, they're arresting him, and he's like, I've been in the temple day after day teaching you. Why didn't you do it then? And the language there seems to indicate that he's talking about more than a week. Secondly, the details of the triumphal entry, the palms being waved, the Hallel Psalms being quoted that we'll, we'll explain in a little while, the cries of Hosanna, the reference to the Mount of Olives, the interest in the temple, which is where Jesus goes after he comes into the city, all of that seemed to be more associated with other festivals like the Feast of Tabernacles, which happened in the fall rather than Passover, which happened in the spring. 
And so it's not 100% provable either way, but it's very possible that this is Jesus entering the city in the fall at the Feast of Tabernacles, maybe even in December at the Feast of Hanukkah, four to six months before Passover. In fact, even John, who, as I mentioned, is the only writer who claimed that all these events happened in this one week, he has Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10, which is in mid-December. As I said, it's not a huge issue. It's nothing important to our faith. The church has included the triumphal entry in the week of Passover and Passion as a form of liturgical tradition since the 4th century. And so we're going to continue to do that. I don't think anybody should start like a social media outrage against Palm Sunday. It's not really that week or anything like that. But it's good to not assume we know a story. It's good to look at what we know and don't know and be reminded that our faith is rooted in a real historical person who actually did all these things about 2,000 years ago. And our records are very clear on some things, like the resurrection of Christ. And our records, well, it could mean this or it could mean this. We don't know and we're not scared of asking those questions and making those examinations. We don't shy away from that questioning examination because Christianity has been tried, has been tested, and has held up and will held up because it really happened. Jesus really did these things. Whether it was in December or in the fall or in the spring, he did enter the city in this way in what we call the triumphal entry. Now Mark also gives us some geographical details that are actually kind of unusual for Mark. Look back at verse 1. Now, when they, draw, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. Bethany, a small village about two miles from Jerusalem, was kind of the home base of Jesus during these last four to six months of his ministry. It was the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead in John chapter 11, where he stayed and ministered from that home base. Mount of Olives was a, a mountain chain, or a mountain rather, on the eastern side of the city. At one point, it rose 300 feet above the city of Jerusalem. And so you'd leave Bethany, you'd go across the Mount of Olives, and then you'd come to Bethphage, which is a small village right outside of the city of Jerusalem. Now, Mount of Olives is the, the, the key term here because the Mount of Olives carried messianic significance. It carried messianic importance. The Mount of Olives was a place of worship even before King David would become king in 1 Samuel 15. According to Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 43, it's a place where God's glory will be revealed one day when he sits in judgment. During Jesus' day, the Mount of Olives carried messianic significance, which Jesus knew, which Mark knew when he recorded this. Hence the reason he names these places as a place where Jesus was before he entered the city. And before he enters the city, it tells us he gives us a couple of his disciples some, some seemingly strange instructions. In verse 1 again, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, I would hear this story growing up, and, and I thought that this was some kind of Jedi mind trick that Jesus had allowed the disciples to do. Go get this colt and find this person with this colt and start untying and taking it away. And when they say, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of it. I'll bring it back when I'm done. And they're like, okay, go ahead. 
That's what it, like, what's going on here? What's happening? But if you, if you understand that Jesus was in this area for four to six months, he's, his home base is Bethany. He's traveling from Bethany to the city, to the temple, teaching day by day, going back to Bethany at night, and he's doing this for four to six months. You can imagine that along the way, he's going to meet people. He's a well-known rabbi. And in meeting people, he finds people with a cult. And he knows. He knows what's coming. He knows what he needs a cult for. It's never been written. So he's building a relationship with them. He's getting to know them. So that when the disciples go and say, the Lord needs the coat, they're like, oh, we know who exactly, exactly who you're talking about, the Lord. <clears throat> sure, you can have it. We know that he's a good guy and he's going to send it back when he's done. Which is probably what's going on here. Nothing miraculous, no Jedi mind tricks. <clears throat> but what happens next is miraculous. Verse 7. And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Here's a colt, more like a donkey, never been ridden before, never been sat on. And Jesus not only sits on the donkey, the colt, but rides the donkey and colt into the city. Now before we get into the significance of that, just think about the miraculous nature of that. Our girls took horse lessons when they were ages 6 to 10. Abigail was 6 to 10, immigration was like 6 to 8-ish. And, and the horses they would put them on at that young age were, were not colts that had never been ridden before. They were usually the oldest horses, the most stable, calm horses, like good old Jake or whatever their other names were. I don't remember. I think Jake's in the glue factory now. But, but they were horses that they knew were predictable. They wouldn't... <laughs> sorry. I think Abigail knew that. Wouldn't <laughs> buck the kids or throw the kids off, right? Unlike this horse that had <laughs> never been ridden. This horse that had never had a rider on it. There's no way you put a kid on a horse like this. There's no way a person gets on a horse or donkey like this unless you don't want to ride it, ever. Right? In fact, I contacted their, their horse teacher this past week and, and just said, here's what I'm teaching and Here's what happened. Just give me some perspective from somebody who's trained horses a long time. What, what typically goes into training a horse to get ready to receive a rider? And she said it, it's, it's usually months, depending on the age of the horse, depending on the trainer and the, just the personality of the horse. It, it can take a long time where they're leading the horse with a rope and eventually a bit and a bridle. And they're walking the horse, doing what's called groundwork. And then eventually they, they put a saddle on the horse, they take a saddle off the horse. They put the saddle on, they take the saddle off. Just getting them used to having this thing wrapped around their, their, their girdle, their gut. And then they get a, when they finally get a rider to get on the horse, the rider's on the horse, but the person's still leading the horse by a rope. And eventually they're, they're letting the horse and the rider just go alone for a little while. So it's a lengthy process of months. But here's a horse, a colt, a donkey that had never been ridden, never been sat on. And the king of the universe, the lord over all creation, it's like the donkey knows that nothing was made that was made apart from Jesus, as John 1 tells us. He knows that the author of creation is sitting on him. And he just obeys, just submits the will, the spirit of the animal to the God who made him. Miraculously taming the horse from the first moment he set on him. Jesus, creator of all things, can do this. Astonishing. And so Jesus gets a colt that had never been ridden to ride into the city, carrying incredible messianic significance. Jesus had never ridden any animal. This is the only time he did this. He walked everywhere. It's not like all of a sudden he's tired I need a break. I've been walking everywhere for three years. I mean, just take a, an animal for a little while. 
He's doing this intentionally to signify something. Now, Mark doesn't tell us. He's kind of continuing this theme that he's had throughout the Gospel of Mark, this messianic secret that Jesus is definitely the Messiah, but it's hidden. But Matthew and John point this out, that this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this was written about 450, 500 years before Jesus did this. But that's not the only Old Testament text that is being fulfilled here. There's other Old Testament texts in Numbers 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 21 that speak of animals that had never been used in service before being consecrated and dedicated for sacrifice, for use to worshiping God. Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11, as Jacob prophesies over his 12 sons, he says this about his son Judah, through whom the Messiah would come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until his tribute, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, his washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, some of you may be reading that and you're like, what? How is that supposed to be pointing to Jesus? So just a quick word about Old Testament prophecy. Because you see a verse like that and you may not get it. How in the world is that supposed to be speaking about Jesus? It seems like a reach. Well, part of the reason we know that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus is because Jesus told us. Shocking. In, in John chapter 5, verse 39, he's in a confrontation with the Pharisees, and he says to them in in that verse, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. They knew the scriptures like nobody else, but they missed the fact that that these were pointing to Christ in so many ways. In Luke chapter 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection of Jesus, are confused and befuddled, like, what's going on? We thought he was the one. And Jesus appears to them, he hides his identity from them, and they're having this conversation with them, like, what's going on? And these two disciples are like, you're the only guy who doesn't know what just happened? So they begin to explain to him about his own death and crucifixion. And he says to them, um, oh foolish and, and, and lacking of faith followers of mine. Something like that. That's a rough paraphrase. And then it says in verse uh, 27 of Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they saw Jesus die. They saw him be buried. But they don't understand what's going on. So Jesus takes them through Moses and the prophets and begins to point out to them all the scriptures that bore witness to what just happened. Moses and the prophets, just another way of saying the Old Testament. We're going to spend some time significantly in the Old Testament after we get through Mark partly because we don't want to be unbalanced and spend a disproportionate amount of time in the New Testament as a church, but also because we want you, the crossing, to see how the Old Testament points to Christ, is fulfilled in Christ. And you can go all the way through the Old Testament in so many places, in so many ways. Here's a sign. Here's a marker. Here's a type. Here's some way that this is pointing to Christ. Some are more obvious and easier to see, like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. In 2 Samuel 7. But some, like maybe this passage in Genesis 49, are a little bit harder to see. But it all is pointing to Christ. 
This word from Jacob to his sons, 12 sons, to specifically Judah, <coughs> the son through whom the Messiah would come, you will have a scepter that will never depart from you. You will always rule. To him shall be the obedience of the people. You'll have this colt, this foal of a donkey, and you'll have garments that have been washed in wine. Blood. All these things fulfilled by Christ. No one knew the Old Testament better than Jesus. And no doubt, Jesus knows the significance of his actions, which clearly show us two things. First, Jesus is completely sovereign over every aspect of his life and ministry, especially this week of his passion and suffering. Like, how do you possibly arrange the events of your life so that you will be arrested, illegally tried, and crucified like a criminal on a very particular day at a very particular time, despite the fact you've never broken a single law. Like, you can't just go up to them and say, hey, I want to die, can you crucify me on this day at this time? Don't ask questions, just do it. He, he couldn't do that. He's, he's completely sovereign over every aspect of this week. Everything he does is incredibly intentional. He's got this thing rigged. But secondly, and related, Jesus intentionally behind every aspect and all the details of this week shows us he is not an unwilling participant in this story. Like, it's not like he had this plan and all of a sudden it got out of control and he's on the cross. Oops, how did that happen? It was all by design, him willingly, lovingly doing all of this, designing all of this, fashioning all of this, to declare to his people, even though they wouldn't get it right now, but later they would, and to us today, I am the Messiah who has come to give my life for the salvation of the world. He's arranging everything to send a particular message, demonstrating who he is. Now the interesting part about all this is, is this. Jesus is the only one who gets it. Jesus alone is the only one who really knew who he was, the, the disciples didn't get it. The people didn't get it. Now they do when they're recording this later on after Jesus has rose from the dead and he teaches them and explains to them what happened and why this happened. And so they, they get it later on as the Holy Spirit is bringing all these things to remembrance. But in John 12, 16, about this particular event, John writes this kind of commentarial note. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John says, we didn't know what was going on. We just knew he was doing this thing, but we didn't understand it until later on. And we began to put things together as Jesus instructed us during those 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Those closest to him don't get it. The crowd don't get it. Only Jesus understands what he's doing. And from Jesus' perspective, he is boldly identifying himself as the Messiah. I am he who has come. The response to Jesus is not a messianic response. Because probably the crowd, the Jews, if they really thought this was the Messiah coming, they're looking for swords. Now's the time. We're taking the city. It's not a messianic response. It's more of a response to a, a well-known rabbi who is coming to the temple during this festival season to worship God. Look at verses 8 through 11. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. When he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. All language drawn directly from the Hillel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. Psalms that were sung by the Jews, written by the Jews to be sung as they go to the temple to worship God during these festival feast seasons. All this language drawn directly from that. If they would have called him the son of David, it would have been more messianic than for them to say, uh, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Son of David was just said by blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. That's messianic. 2 Samuel 7, Jesus is the son of the King David who has an eternal kingdom, eternal rule. Other than that, this is drawn from, from Psalm 18 specifically. Psalm 18, verses 25 to 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed he is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So guys, this is not a crowd receiving their Messiah only to reject him a few days later. They never received him. They never received him as a Messiah, which is why Matthew and Luke record Jesus weeping over the city because they never received him as Messiah. Only a few people saw Jesus as Messiah because God had opened their eyes to see his identity and his nature. This is them receiving a well-known rabbi headed to the temple to celebrate with him. They, They don't know why he's even headed to the temple. He's got his plans, as we'll see later on in Mark 11. But in no way is this a messianic expectation from the perspective of Jesus or rather, only from the perspective of Jesus, from the perspective of the people. If it was messianic, you could have bet the Roman authorities would have already cracked down on that. Even later in the week, when Jesus would be put on trial, and they would accuse him of claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, nobody in that trial pointed back to this event and said, Hey, remember when you rode into the city on that donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, claiming to be Messiah? What about that? Nobody did that, because it wasn't on the radar screen. In fact, um, uh, it's, it's kind of anticlimactic in the Gospel of Mark. The crowd gathers, they watch Jesus ride in, they celebrate, and then he goes to the temple. The crowd had already dispersed. Like it wasn't the entire city caught up in this fervor over this guy claiming to be his Messiah coming to enter the city. It wasn't anything like that. And that brings us to this big idea behind the story in the life of the ministry of Jesus. The fact that Jesus knew his identity, therefore he knew his mission, and he could be both humble and bold at the same time. Jesus, secure in his identity, knew what he was coming to do, therefore he was humble and bold, confident. Bold enough to take this mantle of Messiah on himself and perform actions that only the Messiah would do, yet humble enough not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the thing. We as followers of Jesus, we have his life in us, and as Jesus more and more captivates us and grabs our hearts and minds, as we more and more repent of sin and follow Jesus in obedience... These same qualities show up in us more and more. 
As the Christian life, the gospel is not about us trying to be like Jesus, as though Jesus were the model, the example, and we had to work really hard to be as close to that example and model as we possibly can. That's not the gospel. Like in golf, a lot of you know I like golf. The dominant player in my generation, this generation, has been Tiger Woods. Like from 97 to 2008, he put together 11 years that is hard to match in golf history. Incredible. But that runs pretty much over. Not only because Tiger's gotten old and Tiger has injuries and kind of a hit case now, but because when Tiger showed up and did things that nobody had ever done, what did all the rest of the golfing world do? They imitated him. Okay, he's working out like crazy. He's doing all these things. We're just going to do what he's doing. And over time, it wasn't just that Tiger got old. Everybody got better. When he came out, he was killing the ball, crushing it way further than, than other guys, most other guys. And now he's kind of average. Because everybody else has gotten better. The Christian life is not like that. Here's Jesus, and let's work real hard to be as close to Jesus as we possibly can. The Christian life is, I can't do what Jesus did. I can't live the life that Jesus lived. I fail at it all the time in spectacular ways. But he lived his life so his life could be lived through me. And so Jesus, come and live your life through me. As I repent of sin and admit I fail in 10 million ways, I trust you, I believe you, I'm looking at you. Now come and live your life in me and through me. That's the only way his life shows up in your life. It's not from you trying harder, working harder to get it. It's from you yielding and submitting and trusting and repenting of sin and looking to him and letting his life show up in your life continually on an ongoing basis. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This was the problem with the WWJD bracelets everyone used to, to wear. What would Jesus do? Well, we know what he did. And we pretty much know what he would do in all these situations that we're in. The problem is, I can't do what Jesus did. I'm not him unless his life flows through me. And as we repent and trust him, his life does begin to flow in us and through us. And all of a sudden, over time, you look back, you're like, man, I see more and more of Christ in me than I used to see in me. I'm experiencing more and more of Jesus' life in me. Because Christ is alive in you, you know who you are. You know your identity is wrapped up in Christ. And just like Jesus, you live a life that is marked by his character, his words, his attitudes, his actions. And so when we see Jesus very aware of his identity, acting with great boldness and confidence, I mean, just imagine for a second that put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Here you are, the culmination of your ministry. This is why you came. And you're entering this city that you love. And you're doing these very specific things to proclaim to the city that you're the Messiah. And no one gets it. No one understands what you're doing or why you're doing it. And you know that they don't know. You know that they won't get it until later on. There's no celebration or worship of you as Messiah. The Messiah has finally come. Let's worship him and follow him wholeheartedly. None of that. I mean, like imagine a president showing up on inauguration day and it's just another day, another typical day in the nation's capital. He's there like, hello, 
This is my day to start my reign. And everybody's just kind of going about their business. It'd be disheartening. Yet, yet Jesus continues down this path because he knows who he is. He's secure in his identity. And his confidence and boldness were rooted in that identity, not the approval and acceptance of the people. Guys, when we base our identity in anything or anyone temporary, then our confidence and boldness will go up and down like a yo-yo because we are only confident and bold when we are performing well or getting the approval we desire from the people that we think matter. And we're all tempted to live like that all the time, and most of the people in our culture live like that all the time. Like the, the city of Atlanta. So many of them have their identity tied to the success of the Dirty Birds, right? Their identity tied to this iconic cultural city of the South, the New York City of the South, Atlanta. And if the Falcons win tonight, man, they are done. They're going to be exuberant, celebrating like crazy. All, no work's getting done in Atlanta this week. Their Savior lives. Their Savior reigns. Their Savior has come through. We finally won a Super Bowl. And if they lose... Again, no worse getting done in the city this week. Their Savior has died. We're never going to win a Super Bowl. Because their identity is tied to a football team and their performance and success. So they're going to be over-exuberant or crushed and in despair. Living that doesn't count. They win too much. They have no soul. Kind of like Alabama. But Atlanta is going to feel it. Now, many of us tie our identity to things like that, temporary things, things that don't matter ultimately. And so our confidence and boldness swings up and down depending on how we're doing or how our functional Savior is performing for us. And often we are our own functional Savior. And so I am confident when I think well of myself, when I think I'm doing a good job, when I think I'm looking good, living the life that I've determined I want to live. Or more importantly, I am bold and confident when others think I'm doing good, others think I'm looking good or achieving things that matter to them. And it can be things like marriage success, or financial success, or parenting success, or work success, or academic, or athletic, or physical attractiveness, or being funny, or being witty, or popular, or trendy, or artsy, or relevant, whatever. And it can be spiritual things. Like my confidence is based in the, the performance of my spirituality. So if I'm preaching well, or if I'm knowing the scriptures well, or if I'm praying well, or if I'm doing my mission or ministry well, or leading well, or whatever it is I'm doing, if I think I'm doing it well, more importantly, if other people think I'm doing it well, I'm very confident, very bold. And if they don't, I'm crushed. We're crushed. But if my identity is rooted in Christ, I can be bold and confident all the time in Him. Even when I fail, even when I don't measure up, even when I don't have the approval of people or people don't think highly of me, I am secure in Christ. Right? Which doesn't mean, okay, I have Christ's approval I can just go be whatever I want to be. I don't really care what people think about me. No, no, not, not that at all. It doesn't become, you don't become this steamroller for Jesus where you're just a, a jerk, you're rolling over people, and you're just acting in ways where people are all against you because you don't care what anybody thinks because that's Jesus' approval. 
No, you, you marry the boldness and confidence of, based on your identity in Christ with humility. With humility. Which means that you consider others more important than yourself. And so what other people think and how well you're caring for other people do matter. Jesus knew who he was and was confident and bold in his actions because he was secure in his identity and he continued down this path toward the cross because he was also humble. Which means he wasn't focused on himself but on others that he knew, the others, and he knew the reason he had come to glorify God through his obedient death, to save sinners from their sins. It wasn't about him. It was about his father. It was about the sinners he loved and wanted to save, even those who did not recognize who he was. You see, in our, if our identity is secure in Christ, we will be bold and confident, but we will also be humble because our focus will not be on ourselves, but on others, which is the mark of humility. Humility is not dogging yourself or talking yourself down or anything like that. Negat- self-negativity, that's not humility. Humility is self-forgetfulness. You're just concerned about others. So much so that you forget yourself. Because I'm taking care of other people. I'm serving other people. I'm doing things for the good of other people. We have to have both qualities. Because if we're so humble but not confident, we won't do the hard things our faith in Christ and following Christ require. We'll just kind of hide in our little comfort zones. Look how humble I am. I'm not doing anything, but I'm humble. But if we're so confident, that we're, but we're not humble, we'll just bulldoze everybody in our brashness and boldness, and we will hurt them because we're not looking out for their, their well-being and their good. When our identity is rooted in Christ, we have His life flowing through us, and we are both bold and confident, obediently following Him no matter what, and we are humble because we recognize that all we have All we can do is because by His gracious hand, His Spirit empowers it. So we can pour out our lives for the good of others. You can go through any of the commands of Scripture and see this combination of boldness and confidence and humility. Boldness and confidence because you know Christ lives in you and you can boldly obey this command and carry it out. But humble, you're going to do it in a way that's good for others in a way that draws attention to Christ and not to you. As we love our spouses, we can boldly obey all the commands of Scripture to love my wife well and serve her well because I have confidence that Christ is in me. I know that this is real. I'm not wishy-washy or thrown around or just living, giving, giving over to the doubts that sometimes creep in my mind. Like I, Christ lives in me. So everything Christ says that I'm supposed to do as a husband, I can do it. Because I have his power in me. I can lay down my life for my wife, for her well-being. I can sacrifice and serve for her good. And it's motivated by humility for her. It's, it's for her good. It's not for her to say, you're an amazing husband. It's not for other people to say, you're an amazing husband. It's for her good only and the glory of Christ. Parenting my children. I can fulfill all the commands of Scripture and parenting my children as a father. Boldly carrying out the commands that the Scripture has for how fathers are to love and serve their kids, how fathers lead their kids, how fathers discipline their kids and not exasperate their kids, how fathers invest in their kids and serve them. 
I can do this confidently because Jesus lives in me. And when my flesh is weak and I am tired and I am frustrated, I can lean upon the spirit of Christ that's in me to obey these commands. And when I fail, I can confidently go before the throne of grace with confidence, asking for the grace that I need every hour of the day. When I don't do the things that I want to do as a father, I can say, Father, forgive me. Now, Spirit, fill me and empower me to help me do the right thing today, even if I didn't do it right the entire week. You get a fresh start. That's confidence. That's boldness to obey him. But I do it for their good, not for my good. It's always, how is God working in their life and how can I help him? Not, how can my kids exist to serve my needs? And so I'm, I'm, I'm leaning on him. I'm doing it out of humility for the glory of Christ in me. In, in your workplace, how do you go to a job every day that you hate? How do you go to a classroom and learn from a professor and sit through school that you can't stand? How do you exist and be obedient to Christ and the commands that he's given to employees and employers and students? Because students, that's basically your job right now, is being a student. You don't get paid, except in intellectual reward, I guess. Maybe you get paid one day if you get the right degree. But how do you exist in that role as a student, an employee, an employer, in a job that is so frustrating you want to put your head through a wall? Or for those who hate school, would just rather quit. You boldly, confidently say, Christ lives in me. Me. Christ The king in the universe, the spirit of God dwells in me. So I can boldly obey the commands of Christ in this role as an employee or as a student. Doing it for the good of others so that the company benefits, so the professor, the teacher benefits, so the class benefits because I'm engaged and I'm trying. I'm not bringing down the class with my my bad attitude or my my, uh, bad disposition. Doing it for their good, for the glory of Christ. All the commands of scriptures, you can run through this paradigm. Boldly, confidently obeying Christ, the commands of scripture, but doing it with humility for the good of others because you're loving and serving others more than you're loving and serving yourself. And this is only possible because Christ lives in you. This Christ who entered the city secure in who he was, boldly, confidently, yet in humility to serve others, this Christ, Christian, lives in you. Unless you're not a follower of Christ. And I don't want to assume that everyone here is. You, you might not be. And today would be the day of your salvation. As you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, this one who came to give his life for your sins and rose from the dead for your sins. Today, you can have life in his name. And then you can go live this life of boldness and confidence and humility as his life flows through you. But wherever you have failed, Christian, and we all have, right? Nobody's trying to put on a pretty face here? I hope not. We're all looking honestly into the mirror of God's word. We've all failed at this constantly. And so we all get a fresh start every day. The The mercies of the Lord are new every day. And we all get a a pouring out of his grace and love and mercy on us to give us a fresh start. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for Jesus that he came. He came to that city in humility and boldness. He came because he loved his father and wanted to carry out the will of his father. He came because he loved us and wanted to save us and redeem us. We thank you that he came so that we could have life. We thank you that here 2,000 years later, Jesus is still giving life, giving hope, and giving salvation. And so, Father, we, we repent of our sins this morning. We turn to you once again and ask you to change us. If that means salvation today, then bring that to whoever needs it. If that means a fresh start, a fresh love, a fresh way to see you, then I ask, Father, you would bring that to all who need it as well. For the glory of Christ, for the good of this body of believers, for the good of our city, for the good of the nations, that we would be this people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.